Welcome to the South Point Living Podcast. I'm Melissa Hopper, Creative Director at South Point Publishing, and I'm here with Mark Ripple, editor of the South Point Sun. Hello, Mark. Hello, Melissa. How was your long weekend? It was good. It was um, very productive. We got lots done around the yard and, uh, you know, just enjoyed being around our home. So it was good. How about you? Yeah, we uh, we were home most of the time, too. We uh, we did see a little bit of the grandchildren, so that was good, too. We did, had a couple of driveway visits, so that worked out well. Oh, yes, that's good. Well, yeah, the weather, um, you know, aside from a little rain, uh, you know, for the most part was a nice weekend. So that was good. Usually I, I typically remember um, May 2-4 weekends not being good weather. And maybe it's just because it seemed like any time we tried to do something, um, you know, get away or, you know, do anything like that, it was always crappy weather. So Exactly. Yeah, it just seemed that um, May 2-4 weekend is traditionally rainy for some reason. I remember knowing people that were going to the pinery for that big uh, May 2-4 weekend and get just rain rain from Friday right through to Monday on them and they were soaked and muddy and I was always glad it wasn't something that I partook in. Yes well yeah we were lucky to get some good weather this this year so um, would you like to start us off with some trivia? Yeah we're going to try something a little bit different. I've got six places and they're either fiction or real actual places that are places in pop culture, I guess you could say, famous places. Okay. And I'm going to give you the place, and you have to give me the state or province that they're located in. Okay. So the first one is Yasger's Farm. Number two was Wally World. Wally World was the destination for the Griswold family in the first uh, National Lampoon's Vacation movie. The third one would be Amityville. The fourth one would be Camp David. The fifth one is Stan Makita Donuts. And then there's a bonus one, the Field of Dreams. All right. Well, um, we'll get to the trivia answers later on. Um, And actually, even too, before we get into what's in the sun, just should mention that um, there is no interview this week. It's you and I that we'll just be discussing, um, you know, some local things, some local history. um, And then you're going to tell us right now what's in the sun, too. Well, in the sun this week, we've got a full slate. Yesterday morning, I was fortunate enough to talk to Jason Backley, who is a former um, Leamington Flyer. And uh, Jason and his wife, Danielle, moved to Australia about 11 years ago, and they'd been living down there. He'd been playing some hockey, and he'd also been uh, making a living as a professional professional musician. Um, They decided to move back to Canada. And on May the 9th, they landed in Vancouver, um, went through all the quarantining process, and actually on Sunday, they were able to uh, get out of quarantine for the first time. Their kids uh, met uh, Jason's parents for the first time in person, and uh, they're going to be living in Leamington for the for the foreseeable future. So, uh, quite a story of what they went through um, coming back and kind of repatriating back into Canada after being away for so long during the pandemic. Well, and and making a move like that would be difficult any time, but then throw a pandemic and everything that comes along with that into it, and that must have been yeah. challenging. And traveling with two small children, trying to do that and make sure everybody's protected and and you're following all the protocols. And and the funny thing about it was, funny thing, but they told me that in Australia, they were shut down completely from April through to October, where they couldn't even go out of the house past 8 
p.m. for any reason whatsoever, and it was wow. it was policed by the military. And right now, they have zero cases in Australia. Wow. So they did something right, and they're reaping the benefits for it now. Yeah. So to anybody here that you hear people often around here say that you know we're under lockdown and we're you know this is like we that's nothing compared to what was happening in Australia. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, I look forward to reading that. Yeah. Um, and uh, another story, I talked to Corey uh, Robertson, president of the Bank Theatre, um, last week and, and got a kind of a rundown of what the Bank Theatre's got planned. They're doing spirit walks at Point Pelee, which will start this summer as soon as um, the restrictions are lifted enough for them to do, do that. And uh, they've also got a big grand reopening plan with a variety show of all things. So they've got jugglers and circus performers and all, all that sort of thing all lined up and ready to go for when they can actually open the theater to patrons in person. So they got some big plans. They have five, uh, five plays um, that are already ready to go. And uh, one of them is one of my favorites, a Christmas story. So that I'm assuming would come out around Christmas time. Um, and that'll be a cool thing to watch. So we're watching for them to come forward with, with some good stuff in the coming months. And I'm sure those will be well attended just because people have been waiting so long uh, to be able to go out and do things. So I have a feeling that those will probably uh, sell out fairly quickly. Right, exactly. And they've got, they've, they've went into a partnership with the Leamington Arts Center where I think it is $150 a person. You can buy a Leamington Arts Pass and that'll be coming out in the fall and it'll be effective for the whole 2022 season. And it will allow you into any of the art centers, galleries, and uh, presentations um, free of charge. And then it will also allow you into all four of Sun Parlor Players plays at Bank Theater for the year of 2022. So, and there are some other little uh, perks to go with it. So it'll be quite a thing, popular thing when it comes out as well. That's great. And that's something too that you see a lot more of, I think, since the pandemic hit was uh, collaborations like this, like having the two groups yeah. work together like that to come up with things, definitely see that a lot more. And I think it, it's great for the community when things like that happen. Yeah, I think it'll be really great for the community. I think I think people will will see the importance of arts tourism and and there will be people from outside the area that will come in and, you know, they'll spend a weekend here to, to be able to go to the Arts Center and, and go see a play and uh, go down to the Seacliff Park and watch a concert when the time, the time comes to do that. They'll be staying in local hotels, eating in local restaurants, so it can only be a great spinoff for everybody. Yes, definitely. Okay, elsewhere, um, the uh, Leamington Town Council turned down the bid from Windsor Policing Service for the, for the policing in Leamington. And uh, that contract expires on June 9th with the OPP. And then uh, we will be without a contract in Leamington uh, going forward. The OPP will still be required under the Police Act to police the town as they have been. And uh, I'm sure negotiations are underway with the OPP to try and alleviate some of the concerns that council had, which prompted them to terminate the contract in the first place. So, but the Windsor bid came in way above what they were expecting and they just couldn't burden the taxpayers with that amount of money so well as a taxpayer in Leamington I, I um, applaud that decision yes and I think most will for sure for sure um, the other story I had I talked to the seniors advisory committee a, a, le a little known committee that's uh, that's an advisory committee to town council six local people volunteers on the board on the committee um, as well as the mayor and uh, also councillor John Hammond 
they sit on, I sat in on one of their meetings on Thursday, and it was quite interesting that the way they're advocating for seniors in this area and some of the programs that they're, they're behind that we really didn't realize they were behind. So a uh, good mix of people that are doing really good things, and uh, we'll just give them a little bit of a highlight in the paper this week, too. And I think our area um, has become more popular, it seems, with seniors. We have a lot of people that are coming in from other parts of the province, other parts of the country mm-hmm. that are moving here. When our housing market was more affordable, I think that was uh, an incentive for a lot of them to come to this area in addition to the the nicer climate than some other parts of the province or the country. So I think, you know, we definitely have a more senior population. So a group like that would be great. For sure. For sure. And the last thing is I I, um, I visited the Brew House Market on Saturday. It was the first day for the Brew House Market in Uptown Leamington, presented by Cured Craft Brewery. And uh, it was quite a nice turnout. They've got a, a very good layout there to keep everybody safe. And, and it's a thing that I would encourage people to partake in if they got a chance to stop in and uh, just bring cash, though, because they have no uh, ability there at this point to do debit or credit. But if you brought cash, you'd be able to buy some some food, some baked goods, uh, vegetables and fruits and stuff like that. So quite a nice setup there. Well, that's great. And you had said, you and I had talked about this um, previously, but you had said too that there was uh, very much social distancing, very well organized, making sure that, you know, all the proper protocols were in place for that. Yes, yes, it was very well done. Um, I didn't feel uncomfortable at all. And uh, watching, you know, watching people file through there, everybody was pretty respectful of everybody's uh, personal space so that was good oh that's good i think that'll probably be well attended to you know like so many other things people are just craving um you know those types of things and wanting to get out and and doing that and having that sort of normalcy return so um you know very exciting to see that they're doing that yes for sure for sure and that's about it for this week well, I wanted to bring up something that you mentioned last week that we discussed that was in the paper. You had talked to um, the snake expert. And yes. I had said that I am terrified of snakes. And you said that I should read the article because it would hopefully change how I view snakes. And it absolutely did. You are completely right that I now have a new appreciation for them and, and the things that they do, that they aren't just out there to terrify me, that they're actually doing right. good things um, you know, in their habitat and the things that they're doing. So One of the things that was mentioned in the article was that snakes eat rodents and rodents spread ticks. And personally, we recently had an experience with a tick that we were out in our yard. We came in after, you know, the kids were playing out in the yard all day. We came inside, um, gave the kids showers. And as my husband was brushing um, my son's hair, all of a sudden at the back, the base of his head, he found a tick. And he got the tweezers, was able to remove it. The whole thing came out. It, it was hard for him to get it out, but he was able to get it out. Um, we took a picture of it and then sent it in. And I'm going to mention in a minute where you can send it to if you find a tick and want to confirm uh, you know, that it is that. But, um, and it was confirmed to us within a matter of hours that it was a black leg tick. So those are the ticks wow. that, that can spread the bacteria that can cause Lyme disease. So I had heard on the radio, you know, even a month or two ago about they were saying that ticks are expected to be worse this year. And so we already early on in the season of being outdoors more did have our own experience with it. So I thought it would be good to mention about ticks and just there's some information that the Ministry of Health recently sent out that uh, I just wanted to read here. And it says the areas where ticks can be found are spreading. And as a result, more Ontarians are at a greater risk of getting a tick bite. 
And Public Health Ontario has a Lyme disease risk map, and our area is included as an estimated high-risk area. Okay. So it is important to take precautions to prevent getting tick bites, to reduce the risk of Lyme disease. And infected ticks can be found almost anywhere in Ontario, but particularly in wooded areas, areas with tall grass and bushes, including gardens and parks. So some of the ways to protect yourself um, from tick bites is to wear light colored clothing. So it's easier to spot ticks because they're small. I mean, they can be, right. I think, you know, on average one millimeter to five millimeters. I mean, they're, they're very tiny and hard to see. Uh, something else that's recommended is to wear long sleeve shirts, long pants tucked into your socks and closed toed shoes. I mean, we know that doesn't maybe look the nicest, but it's definitely a good way to protect yourself to use an insect repellent with DEET to stay on marked trails. So let's say you were, you know, walking through Point Pelee and your best to stay on those marked trails, first of all, because they want you to stay on those marked trails, but also because the further you get into, um, you know, higher grasses or more brush, the more likely there are to be ticks there. So, and they also recommend checking yourself, check your children and your pets after being outdoors and remove any ticks promptly, and then wash your clothes immediately after any outdoor activity. And the bacteria are most likely to be transmitted after the tick has been attached to you for 24 hours or more. So it's important to do a check and remove them immediately. Now, if you find a tick, and this is what I thought, you know, there's probably, um, you know, a lot of people that don't know what to do. And we were in that boat. We didn't know what to do. So we went to the health unit's website. They had all the information there, which was great. So if you find them, remove them immediately with tweezers and then clean the area with soap and water. So we did that but once we got it out, cleaned it with soap and water. I know there's also tick keys that you can get that help to remove ticks. I've seen them. They have a picture of it on the health unit website. I'm not sure where you can get them from, but there is something specifically that you can get to remove ticks. And um, yeah, and it's, uh, it looks pretty neat. I just, I, if anyone knows where we can get them, email sun at southpointsun.ca and let us know. But so once, once you've taken the tick out um, and washed with soap and water, if you have any symptoms or health concerns afterwards, it's definitely best to contact your healthcare provider. Early symptoms may include fever, headache, muscle and joint pain, fatigue, and expanding rash. And a lot of times when that rash, it looks like a, a bullseye, like a target right. yeah. where that um, bite was. But if caught early, most cases of Lyme disease can be treated successfully with antibiotics. So that's why it's so important, um, you know, sure. to just keep checking when you've been outside. Also, there's a website called etick.ca and you just upload the photo of the tick. They review it and they let you know. And that's what we did. Sure. We sent the photo. It was a Sunday night. I want to say we sent the photo around like 7 p.m. By the time I woke up Monday morning, and I think the email had come in at like one or two in the morning, they had already responded and confirmed that, yes, that's what it was. It was wow. a black leg tick. Wow. So, yes. So just something to be um, cautious of as, you know, obviously the weather's nicer now. We're spending more time outside. And, and the fact that you can't be doing a ton of things. So more people are being active outdoors than they probably ever were before, just because there's not a whole lot of other things to do right now. And then the fact that, that our area is considered high risk. So definitely something to be cautious of. Yeah. That's always something that you're, you're worried about when you're out in the, out in the woods and out in the long grass and that sort of thing. It just seems to be becoming more prevalent now than it was before. I remember hearing about ticks as a kid, but never, of course, Lyme disease probably didn't exist then, or at least they didn't know what it was. Right. Right. So, didn't seem to be that much of a danger, but now it's certainly something that's serious if you if you get it. So 
And I think the hard thing with Lyme disease is that it can kind of mask itself as it's hard to diagnose. There's so many other things that it it could potentially be the symptoms, um, you know, might lead doctors to thinking it's other things before they finally realize that it's Lyme disease. It's not one of those things that's easy to diagnose. So I think you're probably right that, you know, it's probably something that didn't appear to be around a lot before, but potentially just because it was being misdiagnosed. Right. Yeah, for sure. Now, completely switching gears. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to talk a little bit about um, some local history. And I I do love going through the old papers to see what was going on. So 80 years ago, um, May 29th, 1941, in the Leamington Post, there were a number of uh, interesting stories. And the headline that week was, Town to See Cavalcade of Floats. So the, the right that below that was the description. The people of Leamington and District will have the privilege of seeing one of the finest parades ever known to this section when a huge cavalcade of floats depicting Canada's war effort and urging Ontario citizens to buy victory bonds is scheduled to tour more than 1,500 miles of Ontario highways within the next couple of weeks. So Leamington was included on the stop. Now, the whole reason for this parade was because the Canadian government was appealing to Canadians to help finance the war effort by purchasing these victory bonds. And the bonds were basically a loan to the government that could be redeemed, um, that would earn interest on it after five, 10 or 20 years. And this, at this particular time, 80 years ago, 1941 was World War II. It was also done in World War I. And there were um, big public rallies whenever they were doing these victory bond, you know, these drives to try and get people to buy these bonds. There were public rallies, there were parades, there were ads in local papers. And they're in this Leamington Post 1941, May 29th, 1941 paper, 95%, if not more, of the ads that were in there that week had a message about buying victory bonds. So it would be like the business name and have the business name and logo and the business address. But then the whole message that was included in there would be about buying victory bonds. So, for example, here was one of the messages. That, and I don't remember, I uh, forgot to write down what the name of the business was, but it, you know, right. name, logo, the business, and then the message in it had nothing to do with the business itself. It simply said, much money is needed to buy more ships, planes, and tanks to keep the war away from Canada to ensure empire victory. We must win. Lend your government some of your savings by buying victory bonds. Lend to preserve the things that money cannot buy. Your security is all of Canada. Your money will come back to you with interest. So. I just thought that was really interesting that not only was the paper reporting on this, but that the majority of the ads in the paper that week were trying to push people to do this. Now, in doing some more research on it, there were a lot of people that looked at this as um, certain types of propaganda that, um, you know, really putting pressure on Canadians to buy them. And at times, some of the campaigns were even forceful and tried to shame people into buying them. So there was one that ran in World War One that someone had posted online and it said, don't say it. If you feel you can't afford to buy a victory bond, don't say it. It simply won't go. We're through with that excuse in this land forevermore. The truth of the matter is you can't afford not to buy a victory bond if you expect to stay in this country and look your fellow man in the eye. If you can afford to live, you can afford to buy a victory bond. If you can afford to pay rent, buy clothes or wear clothes, you can afford to subscribe to the victory loan. 
So just something Good. where, you know, it wasn't this nice and pleasant, please buy them. It was more, you mm -hmm. need to buy them. This is why. And we're going to try to guilt you into buying them, shame, shame you into buying yeah. them. Yeah. And I think it was an important thing at the time, right? Um, I believe that they felt the the government felt that they needed to get everybody on board, not unlike what's going on with the vaccines right now. They're, the the incentive for everybody to get a vaccination right now is if we reach 60%, we're going to open up a little more. If we reach 70%, we're going to open up a little more. So it's incumbent upon people who haven't been vaccinated to at least think about getting vaccinated so that adds to the percentage, you know, and the more mm -hmm. people that do that, the better. And I think uh, when I look at that and I look back and read through those things where they were trying to convince people, this is the reason you should do it for your fellow man. It's uh, quite a quite a thing some eight years later to, to be uh, thinking about that. Yes, it's so true. And then I had looked up the following week's paper because I wanted to see, you know, what the coverage was of the parade. And so it said, um, thousands lined the streets for the parade with the objective was set at $1.15 million for South Essex in the victory loan campaign. And a lot of times what they did was they had communities go against each other as a way to try and sure. get more money raised and you want to be the winning community. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so, uh, which was another neat way for them to do it, to try and to make even more, but the goal was set locally at $1.15 million. And as of press time, it said that it was reported that $450,000 had already been purchased locally with more money coming right. in all the time. And we know with press, you know, at that time, especially it could have been, you know, a day, two days, right. you know, yeah. so more money would have come in after the fact. But in the, uh, this follow-up article, it said that among the larger buyers reported was H.J. Hines Company of Canada that purchased $200,000 worth of the victory uh, bonds. Uh, William T. Conklin of Kingsville purchased 25000 and the Township of Mercia purchased 25000 And so I wanted to look up to see 80 years ago, what would that be today's dollar amount with Heinz doing 200000 And today that would be the equivalent of about $3.6 million. Wow, that's incredible when you think about it. Yes, sure. absolutely. So, and I wonder if if that was passed on in any way to the employees through their benefits. Um, I remember when I started working, um, when I came out of high school and started working, that was one of the things that was it. Uh, the first job I had, it came off automatically off of my paycheck, and I said, "What is this?" They said, "Oh, that's the Canada Savings Bond," which was kind of the successor to the to the Victory Loans and Victory Bonds so much per week. And then you had a choice in November of that year to cash it in and take your, what amounted to a thousand dollars plus interest or leave it in there and let it build up through the next year or whatever. And so I, I used it quite liberally by just every year contributing to it. And in November, I would use it for my Christmas shopping. I'd get a thousand dollars plus interest. So sometimes you'd have 1100, sometimes you've had a little bit over that. But at least it was money that you weren't missing every week and and you had that big chunk at the end of the year. So it was kind of nice to have that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And just one last thing here from the what I had looked up was the Canadian Encyclopedia reported that just World War II alone, there were nine different victory loan campaigns that had been done dating from June 1941 to November 1945. And Throughout all of Canada, the total cash um, value of what was raised through those was almost $12 billion. 
Wow. So that's $12 billion to go towards the, the war efforts and everything that was being done there. I mean, that's a lot of money uh, back in 1941. Certainly. Certainly was. So also in that May 29th, 1941 paper, there were just a couple other things. Um, some local excitement, I guess, was that a uh, Royal Canadian Air Force airplane was forced down in Leamington. Um, there was a an instructor at the Royal Canadian Air Force Training Centre in Windsor was forced to bring his training plane down on the Clarence Robinson farm about a mile east of the Leamington dock when a defective spark plug in the motor blew out. He was with a student pilot and both of them were fine. The machine was brought to earth safely. <laughs> and it said uh, the plane was observed by residents of the town flying low over the town and later landed in a field of barley that um, they put in a call to Windsor. A mechanic was flown here to make the repairs and the grounded plane later took off on a nearby road and returned to Windsor. So that would definitely be quite the sight to see. You wonder how long a flight would take. You know, back in those days, it probably took two hours to drive to Leamington from Windsor, considering the roads and the and the vehicles. But a flight wouldn't take that long, obviously. But to arrange a flight to get a mechanic here and get everything loaded up and get get to Leamington and find a landing spot would be that would be something. Now I'm thinking about the Clarence Robinson Farm, a mile east of Leamington Dock, and that kind of situates that farm pretty much where Erie Glen Manor sits now. When I was growing up, that was definitely a farm. That was all farmer's field, but I don't know that that was the Robinson farm, but that's what I'm picturing when, when they say a mile east of Leamington Dock. So yeah. it could be right in that area where the, where the plane went down. So that was, that's kind of neat. Yeah. And then uh, another story that week was that there was a tire blowout was the cause of a highway accident. And a woman from New York escaped injury when her car overturned following the blowout of the, the right front tire and she was traveling on number three highway and making a curve at upcott's corner about six miles west of leamington the tire was blown to shreds while the machine left the highway completely to land on its roof in the north ditch the only part of the car which showed the result of the accident was the roof and damage to that amounted to around 40 dollars wow so i was thinking i thought first of all it's amazing that she wasn't injured Yes. Um, second of all, it's amazing that the damage to the roof was only about $40. And I thought, was that a typo? Should there have been another zero added on there? But uh, <laughs> that, that's what this article said. So It's incredible when you think about it, because first of all, she, she would not have been wearing a seatbelt, because I don't think they had seatbelts. Maybe they did, but I don't think anybody, anybody wore them. If they did have them, they weren't options in cars at that time. Um, secondly, um, I think like cars were built so heavy and so strong even the roofs were were built very heavy that all the cars were giant vehicles right uh, made of very strong metal nowadays it's not so much if you landed on your roof in your car nowadays i don't know whether you'd get out whether you'd get out alive um more than 50 percent of the time so um that's really amazing and the fact that it was 40 dollars you couldn't break off a mirror now or anything without it costing you a thousand dollars so forty dollars is quite something yeah. Um, another story was that it's it was Iris time at Jack Miners near Kingsville. And I do, I would love to, for us to do an episode just talking about Jack Miner. I mean, the, I, I yeah. find it so fascinating the more I learn about him and research and stuff. But it says, Jack Miner has taken great pride in planting his flower garden by the roadside. 
Peonies are on one side and irises on the opposite side. The original iris roots won the gold medal prize at the Philadelphia Irish Show, which means that there are no better irises on the continent. Then it also mentions that over the weekend, hundreds of cars made special trips to see the unique site. Over 50 American cars were seen at one time lined up in front of his home. Jack Miner's home and bird sanctuary being so well known in the United States, it is the means of attracting and bringing more people to Canada than any other single attraction in Essex County. So I thought that was interesting and and I'm sure not a surprise to those people who know a lot about Jack Miner's history. Um, you know, he was so well known, but I, you know, was really impressed to know that 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 was the most popular thing that was bringing people to Essex County from right. the United States. Yeah, that was quite something. When you think about it, and and the the funny thing here is the measurement, where each row of flowers was 100 rods long. And we're gonna have to look that up because I I don't know what that measurement is. I've heard it I've heard it used before, but I don't know whether that whether rods are the same as yards or it's really it's really unique to see some of those words. And that's the cool thing about going back in the history, is the wording they use and and the phrasing they use is just totally different from what what we would say now so yes definitely um and then the final story from from leamington post typewriting marathon at toronto exhibition so i am someone who personally loves typewriters um i like the old like the underwood the you know really old looking ones but uh, that's why this headline caught my eye that all out mechanized war between the stenographers of the united states and canada and it was Canada versus the U.S. in this typewriting marathon. And so it said, teams are to start typing as the exhibition begins August 22nd and are to continue day and night until the exhibition closes September 6th. Wow. Each team uses a single machine, relieving one another at the keyboard in hourly relays, each typist doing a total of two hours every day. So this was just this team competition between Canada and the U.S. And um, it said the previous year they had used H.G. Wells' outline of history as the copy, as what they typed. And the Canadians had decisively revenged themselves on the Yankees for the sound defeat suffered in the previous year, in 1939, when Shakespeare's complete works was the text. So you can imagine it would be hard enough just to type for that amount of time but also typing Shakespeare Shakespeare's works like that would be very difficult and then it said that the previous year in 1940 there had been 150,000 spectators and that the home team had typed over 1.7 million words that Canadians did to the Americans 1.5 million words so to think that for how long they were typing how many days in a row that they were typing and counting the number of words that were typed and i mean i would just right it would be really neat if there was any old uh video of those going on it would be cool and and to think back and in, in that time how do you keep track of all those words like that's just that just yeah. amazes me nowadays uh, you'd have a computer that keeps track of it for you back then there had to be somebody actually counting the words and that would be quite tedious yes for sure now the kingsville reporter uh 108 years ago May 29th, 1913, in the Kingsville Reporter, there was a report that some new bylaw, a new bylaw had been passed. And within this bylaw was a number of different um, amendments to the bylaw or, you know, whatever it was, some, some new things added. And so there were some pretty interesting ones. So, yes. um, you know, among them was no horse not attached to a vehicle, sheep, cattle or pig shall be allowed on the streets or public places of the town at any time without being under the effective control of the owner or someone on the owner's behalf. 
No person shall lead or drive any horse or cow in or upon the town park, except where it is necessary to use such horse in the work of improvement or repair of the park. No person shall lead, ride, or drive any horse or cow on any sidewalk or boulevard or that portion of the street in grass and between the graded portion of the road and sidewalk or allow any horse or cow owned by him or her to be on such sidewalk or boulevard. So obviously there was, uh, you know, lots of issues going on with animals just being taken places, you know. No person shall tie his horse or any other animal to any tree, sapling, or shrub on any street, park, or public place. No person shall drive any horse on any street at a greater rate of speed than seven miles an hour. Wow. So that one maybe giggle because I'm just picturing maybe somebody having having a couple, you know, I don't know what they would have been drinking back then, some moonshine or something and um, mm-hmm. some absinthe and then hopping on their horse and just flying through town. Going. Yes, for sure. Um, and seven miles an hour is just funny because, you know, you think about how fast the cars go through town now and seven miles an hour would be would be considered speeding. 7.1 miles an hour, I guess, would be considered yeah. speeding. So. So that's, uh, and how do they, how do they govern whether the horse is going more than seven? Hours <laughs> there is no radar guns back then. So. No. Now switching gears from the animals. Now there was uh, the, the headline for this part of the bylaw was drunk and disorderly. No person shall be drunk or disorderly in any street, highway or public place. But if person is drunk and not disorderly, the chief of police may release such person when he thinks proper without bringing him before a justice of the peace or police magistrate. So I thought that was interesting that you, if you were drunk, but you yeah. weren't disorderly, there, there was a chance that you weren't going to gonna get a ticket or, you know, have to go to jail. Right. Yes. No person shall be guilty of profane swearing, obscene, blasphemous, or grossly insulting language or other immorality or indecency. So I, yeah, I mean, it would definitely be something that sometimes you hear people just going off on loud rants and it would be nice maybe although I might be guilty of that (laughs) Um, we all are at some point yeah Um, and now the headline for this part of the bylaw is bathing no person shall bathe in any public water in or near this municipality without wearing a suitable bathing suit of dark material covering the trunk and upper portion of the legs and arms (laughs) yeah that's that's long before bikinis became a fashion and uh and that's really uh, that's really something when you see some of those old those old bylaws. Yes, um, no person shall produce or give an immoral or indecent play, sketch, or performance in any theater, hall, or other public place of amusement or entertainment. And if on notice from the chief of police, such play, sketch, or performance is not forthwith stopped, the performer or performers may be arrested and carried as soon as practicable before a justice of the peace. So you could be drunk, but if you weren't disorderly, you probably wouldn't get put in front of a justice of the peace. Right. But if you were doing a play that was in any way indecent or immoral, then you would go in front of a justice of the peace. There's a good chance there. Yes, yes. No person shall spit on any sidewalk or pavement or in the passageways, stairways, or entrances to any building used by the public or in any room, hall, building, or place to which the public resort. So, and if any of these, uh, if you committed any of these and you were convicted on them, then it, you would be liable to a fine of not more than $50. So, yeah. And, oh, and I did look up with inflation today, that would be around $1,300. So, wow. So, yeah, there's something when you, when you look at them. I think it's like every 
five or so years, I hear a story, it's usually out of the US, but where there's some old bylaw that somebody found that um, mm-hmm. comes back up or, you know, somebody that works for a, a town or a city or, you know, somebody that tries to prevent somebody from being able to do something based on finding some old bylaw that's still in effect. So it makes you wonder what kind of bylaws are currently in effect in our area that, you know, might still like, is the spitting one still in effect? Cause I can't imagine anybody on council saying, okay, yeah, let's get rid of that one. People can spit wherever they want. Yeah, exactly. When you think about it, some of them are just common sense, right? The drunk and disorderly one as well. Like I've seen a lot of drunk people that aren't causing issues, but I've seen a lot of drunk people that are causing issues that probably should be picked up and taken in, you know, so mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's quite something. And, and, you know, you do see things like no person can look, look at a horse sideways without, you know, without threat of a $50 fine or something like that. Like there's some really odd ones that are, especially on the American side that are, that are really out there when you see them, but they may be here on the Canadian side and they've just never been exposed as well. Right. Like there could be bylaws on the books that we just don't know about. I know um, many years ago, and I don't know whether it was Leamington or, or another local town was, was called a sunset town or sundown town where people of color couldn't be on the sidewalks between the hours of 9 PM and 6 AM or whatever. And that wasn't that long ago that it was like that. So when you think of that and how far things have progressed, then uh, you think about these other these other ones that are more on the comical side, and you you wonder, wow, are there things out there that we just don't know about? Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. And one of the things too in reading these, it got me to thinking, you know, what somebody going to be looking back? This was 108 years ago, May 29th, 1913. So 108 years from now what somebody potentially going to be reading in the South Point Sun that's going to make them giggle about, you know, like, looking at this, you can't tie your horse up to a tree in public 108 years ago, but 108 years from now, what are people going to laugh at? Like, what's something that's going to be in the right. paper, you know, the this week in the sun that somebody could say, oh, that's so funny that that was in there that, you know, yeah. it's just hard yeah. to know. Um, and even thinking of how much things change, but just the other day I was saying to my daughter who's six and I'm saying to her, um, you know, yeah, we never had cell phones when I was a kid, you know, we had phones and I'm trying to explain to her about the home phone and a rotary dial. And like, she's just looking at me like I'm crazy, (laughs) but, um, you know, thinking that wasn't that long ago. So things change quickly. That's right. They do. And who knows what people will see in a hundred years. So looking back in the newspaper, you know, you, you see some of the issues of today, like greenhouse lighting and the, the cannabis smell that are issues that are that are affecting both Leamington and Kingsville and Wheatley as far as that goes and uh, will that will that be a thing of the past will, will greenhouses have graduated to something completely different well there'll be a dome over the whole t- over the whole town who knows mm-hmm. 100 years from now and people may look back at that and say what are they talking about greenhouse lighting like we grow our vegetables in the dark or something right. like that could be something completely different so Yes. Yeah, just never know. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, would you like to share with us the trivia answers now? Sure. So what I asked for people to do was was name the province or state that these uh, real or not real places were located. So so the first one is Yasger's Farm, and that's in New York. 
It's in upstate New York. Did you get that one right? I did, yes. Oh, good. Okay. Wally World was the destination for the Griswold family in the first uh, National Lampoon's Vacation movie, and that's in California. And that's one of those movies that I can watch anytime, any of the National Lampoon's. I would say the early years ones. Not so much the more recent ones, but the early years ones are always good for me. Yeah, sure. And And that scene, like as funny as Vacation was in so many areas, that scene when they arrived at the park and John Candy was the was a security guard and said sorry we're closed that was just that was classic so and as you're saying like i can totally picture the parking lot completely empty and like yes, just the yes. looks on their faces and yeah yeah um the third one was amityville that's famous from the amityville horror and that's in new york fourth one was camp david which is famous because that's where a lot of uh, political meetings were held back in the 70s um that's in maryland the next one, Stan Makita Donuts, was uh, actually from the Wayne's World movies and a fictional place. They were trying to pay homage, I guess, to Tim Horton. Um, so they picked a Chicago Blackhawk famous player and called it Stan Makita Donuts. So that's actually would have been located in Illinois. And Field of Dreams, um, famous Kevin Costner movie, baseball movie, um, that's located in Iowa. That's it. Hey, well, four for six. I, Amityville, I didn't get, and Camp David, I didn't get either. And I right. put Massachusetts, so I was, uh, I had the an M state, but just the wrong one. Camp David would be one of those that, that's hard to pinpoint because there are so, you know, you could go with Virginia, you could go with Rhode Island, you can go with any of those east eastern seaboard states. Everybody knows it's kind of somewhat close to Washington D.C., but not exactly sure where it's at. So. And I think too, there. I mean, just I remember hearing so much talk previous presidencies about there they would be at Camp David. Um, right. You know, that if something was going on, something especially if there was some sort of scandal, and that be the president would be hiding out at Camp David, or the, they, mm-hmm. his team would be they would all be convening at Camp David to come up with their strategy or whatever that was. And I honestly, until you asked that question, I just realized like, yeah, I have not heard much talk about Camp David over the last couple Either. of presidencies. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I'm not sure if it still exists or if it's called something else now. Maybe, maybe for the last four years it was called Mar-a-Lago or something. Well, that's I was just thinking maybe that's why it was because Trump just always went to Mar-a-Lago whenever he had um, the opportunity. And actually, I have um, an aunt and uncle that live in uh, West Palm Beach, mm-hmm. and they I think they're happy that um, he's no longer president. Only for the fact of whenever he was coming to Mar-a-Lago, there was just always so much going on as far as Secret right. Service and roads closed and. Um, you know, just, yeah, it was a lot yeah. of disruption to that area every time he was coming back there, which I think was fairly often. So, right. yeah, definitely. Um, and I mean, not to get too political here, but it's just crazy now thinking that you don't often hear a whole lot about what's going on with uh, with Joe Biden, not to the point where it's not always the thing that's leading the news every day, you know, at the top of the news is, isn't necessarily him. And so uh, definitely seems like a much uh, quieter news reporting when it comes to this presidency. Yeah, I think so. Just watching CNN, it has totally taken a different, uh, a different twist. And, and there are a lot of people that don't like CNN. Um, I'll tune in every once in a while just to see what's going on. And it used to be just Trump, 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 Trump. They, you know, obviously they did not like Mr. Trump, and he did not like them. It was very obvious right from the beginning. But uh, it's nice to just sit back and see what's happening there now and hope that they're hope they're headed in the right direction. 
maybe they're not. I don't know, but uh, I, I certainly didn't think they were in, for the last four years. So, but I try not to get too political, so I won't say anything further on that. Well, and that's one of the things that I have, uh, you know, a number of different um, family in, in the U.S. and friends over there, and a lot of them, you know, they said that that last presidency caused such a divide that yes, you definitely saw that with the media even was giving more opinion than they were just reporting on the stories. There was a lot of opinion that was going into things. But I had a couple people who have, have said they now watch um, like international news. They look to BBC News or they look to you know some other ones like that to get their reporting on US politics because they figure that's the only way they're actually getting a fair assessment of what's going on and it's not somebody's political agenda reporting on it so i thought that was interesting just to see and you know definitely a good option there if you want to try to get some unbiased u.s news and um you know just yeah some different options there but i definitely wasn't expecting us to start getting into u.s politics in our talk no um but you never know what's going to come up right you just never know that's right. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you, uh, Mark, again. Uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, I'll have an interview with Sarah Rupert of Point Peely, and she'll be talking about the different things going on there. And so looking forward to that. And uh, just want to say thank you to DJ Kersey, Jaron Kerr, who produced our uh, podcast theme song, and also to Sarah Hafling of Elevate Podcast Company for producing this podcast. And we'll be back again next week. If, uh, you know, we appreciate all of our listeners, the good feedback that we've gotten. And we definitely encourage you to subscribe to the podcast if you want to make sure to get notified whenever new podcasts are released. So we look forward to being back next week. Have a great week. Yes, you too.